This morning we have reached Genesis chapter 38. The story of Judah and Tamar. And so I would please ask if you would give attention to the reading of God's holy word. This is not a mere story. It is not merely information. It is the living word of the only true and living God. And the word of the Lord is completely without error. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Genesis chapter 38. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adullamite, whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezib when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go in to your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her, and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went in to his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground, so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went in to her, and she conceived by him. And she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, Where is the cult prostitute?
who was at Anim by the roadside. And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are. The signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah. And he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in the womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out, and she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterwards his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, we ask this morning that you would meet with us. That you would be found, O Lord, in your word. That we would seek after you with all of our hearts, all of our minds, and all of our strengths. Lord, we ask that you would show us that you alone are God. This we ask in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, Genesis sure is a challenge for the expository preacher, is it not? It seems about once a month we have a story about Sodom or a story like this about Judah and Tamar. And you have to understand that the initial temptation is simply to skip over this chapter and to say... I can't handle this. The church can't handle this. Not even the world can handle this. After all, if we're going to convince the world of the truth of the Scriptures and of their need for Jesus, don't we need to make everything perfect? Don't our lives have to be perfect? All of our shirts pressed and ironed. Our slacks with the perfect crease. Our dresses with the hem at the perfect length. You see, oftentimes we are tempted to think it is our job to work God's work. But you see, a text like this shows us that the Lord God is at work in the midst of the mess that His people make. Because you have to understand that what is going on here is a mess of sin in the lives of the leaders of the church. 
This is not some people out there that we hear rumors about second and third hand. This is a story of sin and its consequences, but it is also a great story of redemption and the work of God. We may even wonder what the purpose is of this story here in this place. You know, last week we looked at Genesis 37 and the beginning of the story of Joseph. And my guess is, if you are like me, as I was reading through the text, you were saying to yourself, why aren't we getting on with the story of Joseph? I want to know what happens to Joseph. He's gotten to Egypt. How will he fare? What will happen? So why this interruption? As we think about this, I want you to think about at least three purposes in this text. The first is this is a counterpoint to the story of Joseph. You cannot understand Joseph and his actions in Genesis 39 with Potiphar's wife unless you acknowledge Genesis 38. You don't understand the cost and the burden of the heart of Joseph without this. The second thing that we see in this text purpose is that it shows God's plan at work in the life of Judah. We will see this roll out over the next few weeks. The third thing that we will see is that God does have a plan in the midst of all that man is doing. So God has a purpose here for this, for this text. And I would like us to see three things about sin from this text. The first thing that we need to know and acknowledge is that sin starts small. Sin starts in a small way that we think that we can handle. But the second point is, is that sin cannot be controlled. We think we have sin under control. And in reality, we have a tiger by the tail. But the third and encouraging thing that we see here from this text is that sin is not beyond the grace of God. You see, when we think about our own sin, we can be tempted to think that we are unfixable, that we are broken beyond any recognition. But this text, among many others, describes for us how God is at work in us and sin is not beyond grace. Well, let's begin then by looking at sin as it starts small. Now, the first thing that we see is sin begins by starting at the wrong point. Starting at the wrong point and going in the wrong direction. The misery of this tale begins in verse 1. And it begins very innocently. Look at it with me. It happened at that time, that is at the time that the brothers sold Joseph into slavery, that Judah went down from his brothers and turned inside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. How does this miserable story begin? Judah decides to strike out on his own. And he finds a buddy. And he wants to be around this guy. And so he leaves his family and he goes down and spends more and more time with his buddy. Even, we might say, the text implies that he moves in with him. This is not dissimilar to what happens today, is it? 
you see, we look at this and we say, well, these are Bible people and they wear sandals and they have dust on them and, and cloaks and we're not like them. But in reality, what Judah is, is a guy who's just graduated from college and he finds a buddy to room with. And he's a fun guy. He likes to go out and party. He knows the ladies. He knows the nightlife. And he takes Judah along. He's his wingman. This could be any one of you. I dare say it's been some of you. It may be some of you now. You see, what's happening here is Judah is saying to himself, well, you know, I'm not married yet. I'm not doing anything really horrible. That's not what the text says, does it? The text just says he just turned aside. But what the text says is that he has left the people of God and he has gone to the people of the world. He is living amongst the Canaanites. He is adopting their standards. He is having their life inculcate his. I have said this to you before, but I will say it again. If the Lord takes you to another place, the very first thing that you must consider is where you will be with the people of God. Not your job. Not where the mall is. Not where the highway is. Not even your commute, guys. How you will be with the people of God. Because you see, even if you have the best of intentions, even if you have a good upbringing, if you immerse yourself in a place with other morals, with other views of God, you will be dragged down. So when you consider colleges, young people, you must consider this. When you consider your friends, very young people, you must consider this. You see, that's where it begins, but that's not where it ends. Look, quick upon the heels of that, of verse 2. There, that is where? Among the Canaanites. Judah sees a daughter. Judah finds a wife. And surprise, she's a Canaanite wife in the midst of Canaan. You see, he's placed himself in this position by one bad choice, and now he's faced with a second bad choice, and he makes a second bad choice. So he marries someone who does not share a covenantal view of God, someone who does not share the faith that he at least professes, someone who does not share the burden of his father. He continues down this road. Now, he should have known better. Now, here's where I get to preaching at those of you between about the ages of 15 and 25. Judah should have known better. In Genesis chapter 28 and verse 1, we're specifically told that the family said, don't take Canaanite wives. And as a matter of fact, the language that is used here in verse 2 is almost identical to the choice and the language that Esau makes in chapter 26, verse 34. Judah should have known the story of Esau. Can you imagine growing up in the family and not hearing from dad how he's scared to death of his brother, how his brother wants to kill him, how his brother doesn't believe in the Lord, how his brother then left and went off to Mount Seir? You can't imagine that Judah didn't hear the story so many times that he would give his father the eye roll. 
Again, Dad, I know. No Canaanite wives. I know, Dad. Honor your father and mother. I know, Dad. Don't keep anger. When you roll your eyes, is it a defense from listening to the truth? You may think it's just boredom, but it's not. You see, Judah continues to go down this path and he becomes unequally yoked. You see, the Bible tells us not to be unequally yoked. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 14, because righteousness does not have a partnership with lawlessness. Now, you need to understand, this is not just a Bible rule. I know many of you think, well, you know, we're not supposed to date non-Christians. We're not supposed to marry non-Christians because it's a rule. And then you see, if you're one of those people that are not rule followers, you know, entrepreneurial types, you don't need to have the strictures, you don't need to have the blinders, you want to make decisions for yourself, and you think, well, it's just a rule like you have to eat your dessert after your meal. But hey, I can break the rules, I can eat the apple pie, and I'll still eat the hamburger. Look, the problem is this is not just about a rule. This is a truth from the Word of God that brings heartache when we do not follow it. And we're going to see all of this in Judah's life. Because you see, sin starts small. It starts with the wrong starting point. But now it begins to spread like wildfire. The first sin that starts this all off isn't even in this chapter. Is it? It's in chapter 37. You see, when Judah is not only a part of, but is a ringleader in getting Joseph out of their family. He didn't want anything to do with Joseph. Why? Well, because Joseph was the one who told them when they were sinning. And called them to repentance. And Judah didn't want anything of it. He wanted to get that voice of God as far away from him as is possible. And you see, that is a temptation, I think, that we face. Don't we often think very ill of those who attempt to restrain us? That's the life of a teenager, isn't it? That's that's 90% of the conflict with mom and dad. You're trying to restrain me. You're trying to cramp my style. You just want to tell me what to do. You don't want me to be my own person. But it's not just teens who do that, is it? It's adults, too. Someone comes alongside you and says, you know, I really don't like the decisions you're making lately. I mean, doesn't this, isn't this causing a stress on your marriage? Oh, get away from me, don't bother me. You know, I really think that what you're doing at the office is not going to pay off here because, you know, you really can't treat people like that at work. You really can't have that kind of attitude. Oh, buzz off, leave me alone. We see this all the time, don't we? We see it writ large in our nation. Is not the tale of the last 25 years of the United States one large shout to the church, shut up. On marriage, shut up. On ethics, shut up. On diligence, shut up. We see this everywhere. And it's happening here in this family. It may be happening in your heart. You may be the kind of person 
that is even uncomfortable with me saying, shut up from the pulpit. It would never cross your lips. And yet in your heart, that is what you are saying to the Word of God. We need to be careful. Because see, what happens here is the decline becomes swifter and swifter. We see it in the children of Judah. Now, the first and most obvious is Ur. He follows in the sin of his father. He finds himself a Canaanite girl. Is that shocking? They're living in Canaan. It's good enough for dad. It's good enough for me. So Judah's sin has now made it possible not only for Ur to sin, but for him to rejoice in it. Because he takes the sin to the next level. He's so wicked, he is marked by a great wickedness. This, The way the text describes it, that he was wicked in the sight of the Lord in verse 7, it's not that he did one bad thing. This marked his life. He carried around a sign by his actions that said, I'm wicked. And so because of that, the Lord strikes him down. It is a just judgment that comes down, and it is a warning to everyone else in the family. But you see, the problem is, sin is now on a full roll. It is going down the hill faster and faster. And even the warning of the judgment of death does not stop it. Because you see, Onan comes up next. And there's this, there's this odd law called the Leveret Law. Now, don't confuse this with a Levite law. This isn't related to the Levites. It's related to a Latin word, lever, L-E-V-I-R, which means brother-in-law. And what happened in most of the customs of most of the, the peoples of this time was that if your brother's wife had not had a child and he died, you had to raise up children for him. For two main reasons. So that she would not be left alone without children to support her. And so that his inheritance would not be lost. And so Judah says to Onan, you need to follow this law. And you know what Onan says? Sure, Dad. I'm all on this. I got it. I'll obey you perfectly. And he gives perfect outward obedience. But he has no intention of obeying. We see that in the text. Now, why? Because you see, in his heart, he knows that if he raises up children for his brother, he loses out on the inheritance. He's next in line. If Tamar doesn't have any kids, guess who gets everything? Onan. You see, he cares more about stuff than his father's wishes or his sister-in-law's well-being or the law of the land. He's no better than Ur. But then we have the next man. Shelah. He's no better. Now, I think sometimes we look at this text and because Judah says, well, let Shelah grow up. We think that poor little Shelah is some six-year-old who, when his brothers die, he's got to wait and grow up to marry Tamar. But that's not the case here. It's obvious from the text that not much more time goes by and it becomes obvious to Tamar that Judah has no intention of marrying her to Shelah. And you see, he is, at the very least, an older teen. He is eligible for marriage. And he's not even man enough to be Onan. 
Do you notice that? We look at Judah and what he says and does. But where's Shelah? Where's Shelah to say, Dad, isn't it supposed to be that I'm supposed to marry her? Aren't I supposed to take care of her? Isn't it now my duty, now as the eldest son? Do we see a word from Shelah? No. You know, he is the perfect 2014 man. I imagine that Judah probably could distract Shayla by giving him an Xbox. Here, don't worry about it, son. Go play Xbox. Thanks, Dad. 32 years old, playing the Xbox. He wants no part of this. And you see, this describes the modern man. You see, the modern man finds sin not just in great wickedness of Ur, not just in deception and in heart selfishness of Onan, but in passivity and failure to lead of Shelah. I dare say that Genesis 38 has just hit every single man in this room. Every single one of us struggles in one of these three areas. Either in falling to temptation, sins of the heart, or in a lack of a desire to serve others. Sin continues to roll and roll down this hill, picking up speed. You can imagine it in your mind's eye. Picture the old-time cartoons of the rock rolling down the slope, picking up trees, kicking up dust. And you see, what happens then is sin is not able to be controlled. Sin cannot be controlled. And if we're honest with ourselves, we try and control sin, don't we? It's been drilled in our heads since the early 80s that you can't control drugs, right? You know the whole drill, the whole frying pan, this is your brain, this is your brain on drugs. And we say to people, you know, you can't control heroin use. You can't control cocaine use. And when someone says they can, we look at them and we say, you're nuts, right? We might even put them in a hospital. We think they're so nuts. And yet with sin, we act like the drug addict. Oh, I can handle this. I'm not going to have a full-blown affair. I'm just going to take this lady at work out for lunch. Oh, 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 oh. I'm not going to become the town gossip. I just got to share this news with my neighbor. Oh, I'm not a mean, wicked, cruel person, but I've got to pick on that little boy because, you know, he annoys me. And we think we can stop it. And we can keep it in. And we think somehow if we surround ourselves with good things, that will help us keep it in. Well, you know, I fall temptation to the sin. If I, if I memorize a chapter of the Bible, that will help me and protect me. If I set up daily prayer time, that will help me. I keep my sin on the side, but I got this hedge of prayer time. Right? You see, that's not how life works. Sin is like a fire that when we take it into our bosom, it begins to grow and grow and grow and we cannot stop it. Have you ever seen a fire that looked like it started small and you wonder what the big deal is? Maybe on TV and the firemen are petrified because they know they won't be able to contain it. They know pretty soon it's going to be completely out of control. You see, this is why... In fire control, we're told to take quick and decisive action right away. You see a corner of the house catch on fire, you don't say, well, I'll get to it after dinner. You get after it right away. But you see, this is how we treat sin. Well, I'll get to that after I get married, after I have kids. 
When I'm solid on my feet financially. When I'm retired. And we wonder why sin burns us up. And you see, this is how we do this. First, we think we can control sin by judging it. What do I mean by that? I mean, first, we judge sin as something that we can ignore. We ignore it. This is what Judah did. He said to himself, well, well, maybe this will go away. He didn't discipline his children, did he? He didn't set forth family parameters, did he? He didn't put a hedge of the worship of God around his family, did he? No, he just thought that Ur would come around. That Onan would come around. That Shelah would do the right thing eventually. This is a great contrast with Joseph, isn't it? Joseph loved his brothers enough to confront them with their sin. To tell them they were on the wrong path. Now maybe here Judah thought that he did not want to get in the way. He didn't want to be like Joseph. He wasn't going to be a nitpicker. He wasn't going to be authoritative. He was going to be a buddy to his kids. Let me tell you right now. Gentlemen, you cannot be your children's buddy. Ever. You could be their friend. You could be close to them. You cannot be their drinking buddy. You cannot be their live it up buddy. You cannot be the one that laughs at their jokes. You have to be an authority in their lives. Now, this doesn't mean that you can't be warm and friendly and loving to them, but you have to be someone who is passing down the Word of God to them. You have to be someone who takes sin seriously in their life and in yours. The second thing that we do with sin, Judah does as well, and that is we find excuses for it. Well, you know, it must be something else that's at work here. Do you see what he does? Judah has a son who is so wicked that the Lord kills him. And then he has a second son who obviously disobeys his own command. Otherwise, there'd be children. And the Lord kills him. And Judah's conclusion from this is, Tamar is bad luck. That's his conclusion. This is like saying, you know, I wonder what's going on here. You know, when I, when I drove 85 on I-10, the cop pulled me over at 3 o'clock and I got a ticket. And then, you know, the next week I drove 90 and the cop pulled me over at 4 o'clock and I got a ticket. Obviously, I have to stop driving in the afternoon. What? You see, Judah has not only ignored sin, now he's finding excuses for it. Oh, it couldn't possibly be sin. It's got to be something else. It's bad luck, Tamar. And you, we laugh, but it changes his whole attitude about life. He is so fearful that he will not give his third son in marriage. And it also places blame on an innocent person, doesn't it? Has Tamar done anything? No. As a matter of fact... I think on some level, ladies, you're with me here. Tamar's a saint. 
She stayed married to a guy who was so wicked that God killed him. And then the successor husband she gets is at least selfishly abusive. We don't read about her complaining and moaning and crying. She deserves least the blame here. The third thing that Judah tries to do with sin is to downplay it. And we see this in the next part of the story. You see, what Judah has in his mind is what I fear is in your mind and in mine. He has a sliding scale of sin. It's obvious because he's very concerned about others, but he can go out and have a good time. It's sheep shearing time. Now, I know to many of you that does not sound like much fun, right? If I said to you, guess what we're going to do, young guys, high school guys, we're going to go sheep shearing. What do you think? Really? Like with the smell and with the wool? No, no, no. no. What you need to think of sheep shearing time is spring break in Florida and Mardi Gras in New Orleans rolled up into one. It's the best time of the year. What? It's when we go out, we shear the sheep, but that only takes us a few minutes. Then we party. We drink it up, we laugh it up, we find women, we do whatever we want to do. It's an excuse and we're away from home. It is party time. And so Judah says, I'm going to go be involved with this. And we scratch our heads and we say, have you not been watching what God has been doing? And he says to us, oh, don't worry about it. I'm just going to have a little bit of fun. I'm just doing what everybody does. Look, Hiram's doing it. Bob's doing it. Joe's doing it. Look, come on. What harm could come of this? That's a real temptation too, isn't it? You see, if you judge your standards by what the people around you do, you are in big trouble. Because have we ever come to a point like we are now where the world just seems to so rejoice in sin? A woman gets pregnant out of wedlock, and it is a wonderful story on the front pages of newspapers. What is called wicked in the Bible is celebrated out in our culture. This is what happens when we judge sin. But there's a second kind of sliding scale that we see, and it's how we judge ourselves. Judah thinks that he is a guy in control that he knows what he's doing, and he's on God's good side. But look at this story. Put the pieces together like a detective. He says he's going to the sheep shearing. Tamar finds out about it. And what does she do? She says, well, I'll get him. And she goes and sets herself up with a veil by the side of the road. Now, let me ask you this question. If Judah didn't already have a reputation, would she do this and think it would work? No. (laughs) This is not the first instance. Judah's known for this. This is an easy trap. This is shooting fish in a barrel. Judah's already there. And you see, he doesn't see it. He thinks he's the best guy around. You see, the problem is, is that we do not see the sin in ourselves the way we see the sin in others. He is, we've already seen Judah's sin. He attacked Joseph. He's raised a whole bunch of horrible sinners. And now he's out indulging himself in sin. 
You see, he thinks he has objectivity, but he does not. Do you think you have objectivity about your own sin? Because let me tell you, if you sit here today and say, yeah, I'm a pretty good guy, then you don't. Because true objectivity comes from the Scriptures. And one like the Apostle Paul, the more he knows God, the more he knows the Word of God, the more he is drawn closer to the Lord Jesus Christ, he takes himself down further and further in the scale. Have you noticed that? As Paul's life goes on, he goes from being the least of the apostles to a sinner, to the chief of sinners. You see, the more we know ourselves and the more we know God, the more we know our need for Jesus. If you don't think you need Jesus here to now, today, let me tell you, you are wrong and you must repent of it. You cannot go another day without the Lord Jesus Christ. You are lost in your sin. It is only through the work of Jesus that we can find ourselves. And so we see this story here of Tamar. She's obviously desperate. Now, you may notice that Moses does not tell us that she is horrible or she has done a horrible thing. There is some level in which she is trying to work out the angles of the law. Because you see, the law says that the closest male heir is supposed to provide an heir for Tamar. It's obvious that at this point, that is Judah. He's the only one around. She's merely trying to do what is required of her. But an interesting thing happens here. Judah's very judgmental very quickly, isn't he? Do you notice that? They find out that she sinned because it's obvious. And what does he say? Well, bring her out here and let's find out what's going on. Well, let me, let me talk to her. She's had a tough life. Two husbands died on her. Let me see what's going on. No, do you see what he does? Immediately he moves to judgment. Bring her out and let's burn her. Don't let her defend herself. And by the way, this is the worst possible punishment. It's not the only punishment. So he goes right to the electric chair. Could you imagine if that happened in our society? If someone was arrested and the next day they put him in the electric chair? With no lawyer, no defense, no court? We'd be outraged. And yet that's what Judah does. And isn't that what you and I do all the time? Someone tells us a story and we immediately leap to the worst possible conclusion. We immediately rank ourselves in accordance with the sin of the other person. And we do that to satisfy ourselves that we are not as big of a sinner as they are. This is what Judah does. And it's interesting that God will not let him stay there. There is an immediate turnabout. You can almost imagine the scene, can't you? Perhaps Tamar's giving him the coy look. Well, I guess I have done wrong. All we need to do now is to find the guy whom these things belong to. Because you know, if I'm going to get burned, this guy should probably get burned too. Because you know, this is the guy that did this to me. And you imagine Judah. Oh. And then everyone around him. What? What? Come on, burner. What? What? Well, you see, and you can just imagine, and God has used this. 
in our very brief and final third point. God is at work in the life of Judah. Humanly, there is no hope here. He is miserable. He is a sinner. He should be killed. Tamar should be killed. The family should be wiped off. If we were God, we would do like Noah's time and start all over again. And you know what God does? God confronts Judah with his sin. He does the worst possible thing that Judah could imagine. He makes him seem embarrassed and small and accountable in front of others. And I'm here to tell you that Judah was never the same again. This afternoon, read through Genesis 40s. Who is it that pleads for Jacob? Who is it that pleads for Benjamin? Who is it that says, take me instead? It's Judah. And you see, that's the good news of the Gospel. No matter how wicked you are, no matter how long you have failed, no matter how many others you have influenced to sin, God can still change you in an instant by His grace. That's His business. He's good at it. Not only is God at work, we have to remember this is God's work. Because you see, what happens... We would look at this and we would say, this is horrible and miserable. These people should be taken out to the country and just left there and never seen from again. And there's this ending story here about the twins. What's that there for? Well, you see, it's a miserable sinner like Judah and a confused Young woman, Canaanite harlot like Tamar that God uses to bring Jesus. You see that? They're in the line of the Lord Jesus Christ. Whereas our Lord will come. We might even say, if this had not happened, there would be no Jesus. But I would rather have us say that in spite of the fact that this happened, God has used it to bring the Lord Jesus Christ. So there is hope for you and for me. No matter what we have done, God can use it for good. We meant it for evil. But He means it for good. Not that He desires sin, but that He takes by His grace and so overwhelms sin that it turns out to His glory. That's why Paul can say, where sin abounded, grace yet more abounded. This is the hope of your life and of mine. The grace of God in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.